The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. All right, let's get started. Today we welcome Professor Ken Thompson from the Digital Media and Design Department. He's both a video game designer and an educator. He did his undergraduate studies at RPI and then went on to work in industry for about eight years, where he worked with big companies such as Activision, Electronic Arts, also known as EA, and Sega. What was your favorite project that you worked on in the industry? Oh, boy. Um, you know, probably still Madagascar Operation Penguin, which was for the Game Boy Advanced. It, it won an award, which makes it nicer to brag about, for, from Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Award. But more importantly, I had a really great experience with the team that I was working with. We were all crammed into a room, probably about as big as this one, and there's about eight of us, and we we're all wall to wall. And it was just a really good uh, environment, and we really worked hard and you know, made a lot of friends. What exactly was your role in the production of these oh, yeah. video games? My, my job is a game designer. Typically what that means is uh, uh, anything. It can mean creating the idea of what the game is, uh, or more likely it's about creating levels and using assets to create interesting experiences. So a 3D artist might make a mailbox, but a designer places it at the front of every house and then makes a little quest that you know, opens up the mailbox and you know, has an mm -hmm. interaction. Um, so that's kind of like the, the lower entry-level work that we do, um, is like scripting events and or architecture level design. After that, though, you become uh, more of a, a writer and a communicator and someone who brings ideas together as kind of like a director of a movie. And that's kind of that uh, idea designer that everyone kind of really right. wants to be. You know? So, I mean, like you were just mentioning, uh, you know, your work has won many awards, the Nickelodeon's Kid Choice Award, Best Game of the Year, uh, Indie Game of the Year, some of your work, Innovation Awards. Given all that success that you were having, and clearly you have very fond memories of your time in industry, what made you decide to move into academia? Yeah, part of it was uh, someone emailed me at the right time, a professor here who used to be my professor in graduate school who came here, Jim Watt, in communications. Um, and he just emailed me and said, hey, we're starting up this new department. If you know anyone that might be interested, let us know. And, you know, at that time, I had been looking for more meaningful work. I had been an independent developer in Seattle for about two years. I worked on a game called Space Chem with a good friend of mine, and he's a brilliant designer. He went on to do even more brilliant things after that. But I was working with that. I was also doing some serious game work, which was with children who were having cancer treatments, so there were long-term physical therapy needs. So what we were doing is making Connect games that would allow them to kind of use that to do physical therapy. Oh. So that kind of got me interested in some stuff. And the last game that I worked on professionally from a commercial side was uh, Captain America Super Soldier. And that uh, was really fun. Like I was really happy to be like one of the first designers to touch Captain America as, a, as like a video game. Because um, I, I worked on Spider-Man mm -hmm. 3, 4, Web of Shadows, da 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 da, da. So <laughs> it was fun to kind of turn a page. But uh, also, as part of that work, you know, I, I kind of felt like I was doing the same thing over again, and also the work that I was doing um, was very entertainment-driven. But also, um, I noticed something that was kind of represented in the work that I have now, uh, which was uh, that the World War II games, specifically like, you know, with Red Skull, Captain America, Fighting mm -hmm. Hitler, all that kind of stuff, um, I was noticing kind of an overall trend that I actually was contributing to. And, you know, I love the game and it was really fun. But I, I think that one of the things I came here to do was to create experiences that kind of dealt with more difficult topics and, and kind of delved into them more, more deeply in one way or another. 
So um, something that I think academia really has an advantage over, because we don't have as many people looking to us to say like, oh, you gotta make, gotta make a million hits, right. or you know, sales. You gotta make a million sales. You gotta be able to sell a lot of stuff. Uh, what we're looking for is creating games that are engaging and something that will leave you thinking at the end. Right, and that's a totally different way to look at video games and to even approach the design of a video game. Correct. I mean, at least the societal perspective I think on video games is such that. They are mind-numbing. It's you get immersed in this, whether it's a first-person shooter or a sports game or something like that, and it's not like it's serving any educational purpose. But there do exist a whole realm of video games that contribute to educational purposes. Um, you just mentioned physical therapy for cancer patients, so mm -hmm. they do have this impact, and there is potential there for for reaching better purposes than just you know a getaway. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, there's a whole range of things that people are, are trying to approach with games. And yeah, you know, at, at one time people thought, oh, games are fun. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, movies are action. Well, there are other kinds of movies too. Right. There are deep movies. There are movies that make you think. Um, and, you know, those might not sell, you know, uh, tickets as often, but there is a space for them. And what I think part of my work is, as someone who's worked in the game industry, someone who's worked on those kind of titles, uh, now coming to academia, I feel like I, I'm in a position to bring a little bit more depth to the games that we're working on already. And, you know, making interesting experiences that people will remember. Mm -hmm. So what are you currently working on? What are the projects that are going on in your lab? Yeah, so uh, currently we're working on two projects. One is for the National Institute of Health, um, and what we're doing is creating a game platform for testing purposes. And what we're testing is whether or not people will be affected by in-game commercials. So if you think about back to the 2016, or what was it, 2012, I think, election, there was some campaign posters in video games such as, uh, I think it was Burnout Paradise. And they were up on billboards, so it's a racing game, and there were billboards, mm -hmm. and there was, you know, vote for Obama. Um, and... Uh, other messaging strategies. There's day-to-day -day Burnout Paradise. I, the last time I played it, they were having commercials for Vizio. Um, but our research is to figure out the psychology behind whether or not commercials are effective. Specifically, what we're looking at is anti-smoking, anti-drinking campaigns. So we're looking at it from a very serious angle right now, but obviously that, that can kind of extrapolate to other mediums and other, or not mediums, uh, other, other messaging. So. And so the second project that I'm working on is an interactive experience uh, that's uh, in collaboration with the Dodd Center here at UConn. So I don't know if you guys know about the Nuremberg trials. Do you right. Yes. Um, so, so just uh, you know, in case someone's not aware, um, the Nuremberg trials were right after World War II. The French, Americans, the Russians, and the British all uh, got together and decided to put the remaining Nazi leaders uh, on trial for war crimes including a new war crime called Crimes Against Humanity, which was something that hadn't really existed before then. So Thomas Dodd was the junior prosecutor on that case, um, and if you, there's also a really good movie that has Alec Baldwin in it from the 90s, if you want to go watch the film. What uh, movie? Uh, it's just, I think it's just called Nuremberg. Mm. So the Nuremberg trials um, happened, and they, they prosecuted these Nazi war criminals. And some of them, you know, didn't actually receive any sentence. Uh, and that was one of the important aspects, was that a global community comes together and 
really decides whether or not something was okay. You know, there had been war crime trials before where um, uh, the the ruling or the victor of a war can sometimes put people on trial, and it and is sometimes referred to as like a kangaroo court, uh, in which um, there is a already known outcome. But the Nuremberg trials avoided that, and they were trying to create a legal precedent and a framework that happens and is used to this day in other tribunals, such as Rwanda and Sarajevo. Um, so there are other international military tribunals going on today that are using this legal framework. So anyway, the, the paperwork that we had in Nuremberg that Thomas Dodd had was donated as part of the Dodd collection to the Dodd Center. Um, so we have all the original papers and documents from this trial. At UConn. At UConn, yeah. And is that unique to us? It is unique to us, yeah. So we have all the paperwork. And in fact, if you go over the archives right now and you ask them um, to see these paperworks, they'll, they'll give you a facsimile copy because a lot of these are on, like, rice paper, something, you know, right after the war, there wasn't a lot of paper around. So a lot of this is very, very delicate stuff. And there's photographs as well. Um, so a lot of it is only accessible either as a facsimile or as, a, um, as an online uh, digital repository, which we have. So if you can go online right now, you can look at the whole collection as it sits in a digital collection. So our project is to bring that collection to life in a virtual reality environment in order to work through a narrative experience that allows us to understand more completely some of the aspects of the Nuremberg trial, as well as how it affects things today. If you are medical students, there's the, the Nuremberg Code, which is about consent. Sometimes there, there's informed consent, so if you're going to okay. be working with users, um, that, that comes from the Nuremberg Code. So there's also a lot of other kind of stuff that's just kind of <laughs> out there now. <laughs> what, what brought this to your attention? Like, what made you decide to, you know, look at the Nuremberg trials? Well, so a couple things. Like, one of the things was, as a Jewish person growing up, I was very inspired by two things. One is my rabbi, who had made a board game called Expulsion. But it was about um, the expulsion of Jews from Spain. And she made a board game about it, and I remember playing it as a, as a teen, not thinking anything about it, mm -hmm. but thinking, oh, right. there's some serious games. But as well, I was really inspired by Art Spiegelman's work, Mouse, which, if you're not familiar, is a comic book where it tells the story of Art's father, who was in the Holocaust, uh, but it tells it from a perspective of anthropomorphized animals. So mm. certain groups are certain animals. It's kind of like Animal Farm. Yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit. And it was a really compelling work. It was very strong. Um, and it was a comic book, which was this weird medium that not, you know, it wasn't something that you think about with Holocaust sure. studies yeah. is, oh, comic books. Um, but that really had a really strong effect on me because I really was able to understand it. And I thought that was really important to kind of get that kind of messaging across about what this event was about and how people felt about it. And I connected in a stronger way than I did reading books. I also connected really strongly with survivors that I had met, family, friends and family members. And, you know, that's something that is probably going to be unique to my generation. As survivors pass, there's going to be less times where we're going to have those very strong connections. So I'm looking to hopefully supplement that with an experience that allows us to understand things more, more completely. So if you're playing this game, you are in the courtroom, mm -hmm. correct? And then what is your objective or what is the approach? How does somebody actually interact with yeah. the documents and the people? Yeah, so one thing is we've been thinking a lot about language as we go through this. And uh, so we've been using terms like experiences opposed to games, partially just because 
there's some connotations that go along with games. And one of the things that we're doing in our early research is figuring out the correct way to present um, narrative and to present interactions so that it is cohesive with what we're trying to do. So in terms of what we're thinking about and how it's working right now, right now you have absolute access to the uh, in Unity, which is a 3D game tool. We have the ability to go online to the digital archives, pull one of the archive pieces, like a, a, an image or a document, and bring it into Unity and read all the metadata there. So when we, you say Unity, what do you mean? Uh, so in Unity, uh, the video game yeah. engine, we're able to access the digital archives live. So what that means is when you play the game or the, the game experience, you. you're able to access the entire archives in a virtual reality setting. Gotcha. So one of the challenges is just like, how do you interact with a giant database in a virtual reality setting? So that's one really important aspect that we're going to figure out. But also, as you're working through the scene, there's going to be kind of two portions, a pre-trial portion and then a trial portion. The pre-trial portion's a little bit more explorative, in which you're looking at the documents and you're trying to find which documents are going to be pertinent to the uh, defendant that you're working with. So we're going to be picking one of the defendants and we're going to set up a narrative scenario um, that allows us to explore both what the defendant was doing, but then also you know, why this trial was here in the first place. Because, you know, we didn't have to have the trial. Like, we, the Allies won the war. They could have decided whatever they wanted to. Um, but they, they decided that they wanted to have this trial because they wanted to make sure that going forward there was evidence and also a discussion on camera with these people, the people who were complicit in this. So there is a, an element of stagecraft that went into the design of the original trials themselves. In the same way, we're using the current media to kind of start explaining some of those things. You know, and they, they had a lot of the same worries that we have, which is, what if someone misuses this? What if someone uses this for some other purpose or to support uh, Nazi doctrine or something like that? Are we giving these people a mouthpiece? You know, that kind of thing. So we're working through those same kind of questions. How do we treat these documents correctly? How do we create a narrative that's both interesting, but then also gives us multiple angles, including understanding the defendants, understanding you know what happened from both fact and from people who were questioned. So anyone who was brought as a witness, we're looking towards their voices and seeing what they can contribute as well, which is you know another aspect that's very oftentimes in movies very you know uh, mm, left out. Right. Yeah, it's a difficult line to walk, you know, to try to maintain. I mean, the historical accuracy will be able to be maintained because you have those documents on hand. So that's not really in question. But to approach it the way that these, you know, courtroom officials approached it at that time to try to really shed light on what happened in those rooms, right? I mean, that's a difficult thing to do and in the same manner and the same themes and come across. Yeah, virtual reality is something that is, is a little bit new and thinking about virtual reality as a really important medium in this is because of the sense of scale. In the Nuremberg Trials there's a video in which there is a very large tractor and I had seen this video before in, in elementary school. I had seen the, a man sitting on a tractor pushing dead bodies and I hadn't really thought about it before. But I had, you know, recently, because I drive down 44, driven by a tractor of similar size and origin, and I just realized how tall that was. Like, I stood next to it, it was above my head. It was 10, you know, 15 feet tall where the seat sat. That was really uh, uh, a 
surprising to me because I had seen that video. I just really I didn't connect the physical mm -hmm. nature of that uh, of that part to the video I was watching. So VR allows us to put a user into spaces that allow us to contextualize numbers. So, uh, or maybe you've been on college campuses where they do Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, Remembrance Day um, flags, maybe, or some sort of like, this is 5,000 flags or, uh, you know, uh, 6,000 flags and each flag represents 1,000 people. Those kinds of things happen a lot. Right. It's hard to figure out numbers. It's hard to figure out mm -hmm. how to show people the scale of that. Um, and I think VR can help a lot. So so I know you also went to the courtroom itself yes. to take measurements like to make it as realistic as possible. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Fortunately, we were able to get a few internal grants from the School Fine Arts Dean Grant and uh, the uh, Vice Provost Global Affairs Office and the Dodd Center to fly out to Nuremberg and to take some photos using a process called photogrammetry. You might have actually seen a commercial recently from Microsoft where it's a guy taking photos of this old ruins and they're putting it together and stitching into 3D. So that's the same process, basically. We're taking photos, using them as reference, and then generating 3D models from it, as well as just using it as reference for general. How big is this room? Um, You'd be surprised how hard it is to find a picture of the ceiling in, in the Nuremberg <laughs> trial online. Like, not many people look up. Right. So, you know, that was a really valuable thing. Um, and we were able to communicate also to uh, the memoriam director there and uh, ask for their help in our project as well, that kind of stuff. So it was a really valuable experience, as well as also talking to some of the German people there. Because, mm -hmm. you know, these, these people live there and live that city and that experience and know that history and the people a lot of times the people who come to their city are american tourists looking to talk about world war ii so you know they've had that experience and it's important for me uh, as a researcher and a game developer the same way i would understand you know spider-man um, or any other product it's really important to understand the context of what's going on for and, sure. and know what people are thinking and how they're feeling about this subject specifically where is the game at right now in its development? Yeah. So right now what we're doing is what I would call pre-production. We're developing interactive methods. So we're trying to figure out, like, what's the best narrative mechanic? So there's, like, Telltale Games. Mm -hmm. we, we've looked at Telltale Games. We've looked at Heavy Rain. What's the best way to, like, interact with a narrative so that the flow continues and it allows us to use those pieces of evidence as part of the trial process? And uh, we are also figuring out the look. There's many looks that we can do. Should we do hyper-realistic? Should we do maybe uh, the sketch look of a courtroom artist? You know, there's a lot of different choices, and then how those choices happen is a technique we have to figure out in, in, game, in, in Unity and 3D. So, so we're working all towards that, which will hopefully allow us to have a design charade this spring. Uh, we put in a grant to the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, and we're you know, applying to other grants as well. But our first grant is uh, what we call a discovery grant to bring an artist from Tel Aviv who has worked with Nuremberg mm -hmm. as well, um, the memorial director from Nuremberg, as well as uh, local scholars to kind of come in and talk. And that's what we're doing right now is developing enough things to talk about like to try and to play uh, to interact do you so, see this as yeah, being ahead. more like the player as an observer or more mm. directly interacting like how how much of an actor within the experience would they be i think that actually kind of drives to my current 
design philosophy. If you've seen the Milgram experiments, um, which is the ones in the 1950s, which are about uh, electrocution and right. flipping switches and personal choice, you'll know that your choices matter. And so right now, the way I'm approaching this game is that the user must act and uh, the user must be able to interact with the documents to kind of push forward the, uh, the trial. So if, if you're not acting, then you are almost complicit in allowing this person to walk. Because this was a real trial. If, you didn't, if, the, if these lawyers didn't you know, step up, if they just went out and partied all weekend, then these people could actually go away. And I think it's really important to communicate that in our gameplay experience, is that your actions actually will affect things. Now, and I've had people been like, oh, well, does that mean that the Nazis could possibly walk or something like that? And I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I've talked about that a lot, but I think that that was how it was in the real trial. And so it's important to make sure that the users understand that, that actions matter and that everyone's actions to step up, um, is, are important. And a lot of times during World War II, I mean, the lead up to World War II, it's about the people who didn't stand up and act, you know, so. Now, this might be somewhat of a naive question, but when you are interacting with these people, can you converse with them? I mean, in a courtroom, I feel like the main agenda that you have as a person is through conversation, right? And so is it going to be like old school video games where you have a drop list of, you know, you can say this response A, B, or C, and they can respond to those predetermined questions? Mm. Or is it more of a genuine conversation that you can have with them? Yeah, that's not the naive part. That's the, that's the challenge. Right. Which way is going to be the best? Should it be a drop-down list? Mass Effect, they have this like wheel of emotions, and it's like angry, uh, or generally <laughs> nice, generally mean, you know. Right. There are many different ways to navigate a, a conversation. So yeah, that's the experiment. So we, we have a couple different ways we're thinking about now. Um, and we've been looking at games, like I said, Heavy Rain, Telltale Games, Shadows of Mordor. There's um, um, a part in there where there's some narrative experience with words. Um, and like collection of words and placing them in slots for some of the puzzles. I don't know if you've done the collection puzzles yeah, in that I game, am. but yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of options uh, or a lot of opportunities to try to get that right. I see. And so, yeah, that's what we're trying right now. We kind of talked about your first project, uh, just brushed the surface with it. Oh, yeah. uh, let's, yeah. let's revisit that one. So the approach is to look at the effect of advertising within video games, mm -hmm. correct? So what is the current stance? Is there a known effect right now or is this the first time people are asking this question? Well, we've asked this question in a lot of ways before, right? Like if, and this may be too far back, maybe not for you guys, but there's that commercial, this is your brain on drugs, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a woman who just completely destroys her apartment and an egg. And that commercial was a very strong message and, and it was measurable because there was a, something we call boomerang effect. Something where there was a, a, a subset of the population that was like, I am going to do the opposite of that message because they told me not to. So we have been able to measure these kind of things. And what we're doing is taking existing research measurements and applying them into a game world. Part of the challenge, though, is you have to make a good, interesting game. You can't make, like, a game researcher tends to not have that skill set because they're a psychologist right. or something. So that's my kind of role on this, is create something immersive, quote unquote, um, uh, something that really is uh, fun and engaging and just something that, like you would play anyway, not because someone is paying you 10 bucks to answer a survey at the end for. So 
And what exactly is the rationale behind thinking that these would be more effective in these games versus the, you know, the boomerang effect you were uh, talking about in those commercials? Well, so it's not more effective, but we're measuring what is effective. Fair like, enough. what messaging works and what kind of games work for it? Like, if you're a race car game and you see that billboard once, or if you are in a Cooking Mama game in which you see the logo constantly over and over and over again, and, you know, there's also a lot of, like, it, Korea actually found uh, marketing with video games and partnering with corporate sponsors a lot earlier than we did. So in South Korea, like, this has been happening for a really long time where they've been like, this is the KFC thing, uh, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, we've seen these games now, too. There's like a Fruit Ninja kind of thing for Oreos that was really good. So there are opportunities, like what kind of marketing works and what doesn't work, you know? And because uh, of the nature of uh, anti-smoking and anti-drinking campaigns, we have a lot of data about how to measure effectiveness of, of campaign strategies. So we're going to do that same kind of measurement, but in this situation. And that's a research approach rather than a video game that'll be marketed towards mass consumers, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is, yeah, just this a, is mostly a study. internal. That being said, um, you know, it's something that I work on with my students in class. Right now we have the base game, which the first one we're doing is a skateboarding game where you can kind of stick through the walls. So it's kind of like uh, Jack Ryan Radio meets Rocket League. And so you can stick to the walls and collect things. It's just really fun. And my students in my 3D virtual worlds class are making levels for it right now so as their wow. final project. They just started it. So they're going to do a half semester level. And then, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't publish that or show, share sure, that yeah, with people. It's nice not having to worry about profit or, you know, having a CEO be like, no, I want the 30 <laughs> kids in my kids' class to all have names in the video game. Right. So you've got to figure that out, like put some more <laughs> characters in. So That's a fun class to take as a student, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I looked into that. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> so that study, I mean, that's a study, right? Uh, the Nuremberg Trials game, when do you anticipate that will be? I mean, you're still in pre-production, yeah, yeah. so that's so a ways out. We're working on that right now. So I, it depends on two things. One, of course, is if we can find funding. But I'm looking to get a workable, playable project by 2020. Okay. Uh, and games usually take, you know, anywhere between six months to seven years to ten years, depending on the project. Right. So getting a, a first playable project in 20 years, which is also the 75-year anniversary of the trials, wow. is kind of our goal right now. What platform would you be releasing it on? You know, is this experience, is this like a... Yeah, well, so right now we're working only in HTC Vive, and we're working to release it as part of a curated experience in museums. So, like, we've talked to the people who've done the Rosa Parks experience, and the I think it's the uh, Kentucky Freedom Center. Mm -hmm. So there are opportunities for us to share this. And right now, obviously, as a really sensitive project and something that can be received in different ways, we want to work out all the ways those can be received before it kind of goes out to anyone. But it's also our intent to start allowing other people, general people, to use this. And by general people, I mean the state of Connecticut recently passed a new law requiring genocide Holocaust studies in K through 12. And it's one of four states that really? have done so. So we see this as part of an ongoing education and discussion sure. about this topic. Would this ever be like, I mean, I know this is possibly far out, but ever available on Steam or something yeah. like that, like very widely available kind of... Uh... Yeah, in fact, like the Anne Frank house is available for free mm. on the Oculus Rift. And so, yeah, that, that would definitely be a good end goal. And, you know, we've seen also some movement in games like this. There was a game last year that was an honorable mention in the IGF called Attendant 1942, which was a really interesting game 
uh, done by some people uh, uh, who I'm going to forget the names of, but one I believe was in a university in, in the Czech Republic um, and dealt with a story of survivors in Prague. So, you know, I see other opportunities to distribute a project like this very widely, but we're going to be real careful about it and move as we find it appropriate, as we find it helpful to others. That being said, the whole database interaction stuff, I want to get that out there as soon as I'm done mm -hmm. with it. Like, our library works off Islandora, which is a open source framework, and I'm working towards trying to get a plugin. So I would love to enable any researcher who works with an Islandora um, library to live fetch uh, documents from their library and put it in Unity and then use it for whatever purpose they want, whatever whatever it um, supports. Mm -hmm. So pictures, documents, you know, meta text, all that kind of stuff. Do you think there's a trend in gaming right now moving towards like? more dissemination of historical information like i know for instance the new assassin's creed game they have like a mode where you can be mm -hmm. kind of taken through greece and uh, exposed to a lot of historical information and you were just mentioning some games just now that also uh, you know gaining some notoriety for this do you think that's a yeah a no absolutely trend? a trend minecraft for education is a whole department at microsoft now and it's a specific direction that they're taking minecraft um, and i think they did a, like a chemistry module hmm. which was really interesting so you know it's been a while um, I, I mean but I, I still look back fondly at games that I played that were educational in nature. You know, Math Blasters wasn't as cool, <laughs> but it was still something I grew up with. You know, there's there's a bunch of other ones. So, yeah, I think we've always done it. I think we've started to actually figure out how to do it mm -hmm. without boring anyone to death, uh, which is really good. And also, I think it's because we've expanded what games mean and, and what who gamers are. A lot of people ask, oh, you play games? They're like, no, 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 I don't play games. They're like, oh, your grandmother play games? Oh, no, they don't play games either. I'm like, can I see your phone? and I see a, like uh, a Scrabble game right. or something with them that they're playing with their family. Candy or, Crush or yeah, something. Candy yeah, Candy Crush. But adults play it. Um, you know, uh, everyone is using interactive media now. So the, the definition of games is, is much easier to... <laughs> uh, broader. Yeah, a little broader. So we can kind of use that and more mature now. And that, that's kind of part of this process is maturity. Do you think virtual reality as a way to play games will be more feasible in the coming future? I mean, if yeah, so VR was huge and flashy, really, like a couple years ago, and then everyone's a little quiet. So my industry take on it is five years from now, the headsets are going to come off the wires. Like right now, it feels like setting up a Sega Genesis. There's a lot of extra connections <laughs> to do and some screws. So once that is solved. And the wires come off. Um, we're gonna and like Oculus Rift is already coming out with like the Oculus, Oculus Arena Quest. and the oh, the Quest. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Um, uh, so you know there are opportunities coming out. Uh, I think it's not there yet. It's a little too heavy. The mm -hmm. battery won't last too long. But once it's there, five years from now, that'll be great. And I think that's gonna lead also into augmented reality apps. There's gonna be a lot of business applications for that. I mean, like I already use my phone to measure stuff um, with the measurement camera app. I don't know if you guys know about that. Really? But, uh, yeah, you not take yet. a picture and you put two points down and it tells wow. you how distant what the distance is. So there'll be more opportunities for that. I mean, I definitely think virtual reality has, I mean, especially in educational games, like mm. we're saying, you know, if you play it regularly now, it might not be as engaging, but if you are in the moment, like in the Nuremberg trials, if you're in the courtroom, it becomes so much more immersive. And it also probably helps you retain that information and the education you're receiving from that game a lot better as well. Yeah. So there are clear benefits to that technology, you know. Yeah, that's one of those holy grails. Heavy immersion in anything allows for a lot of communication and information <laughs> flow. And, the, you know, that's the goal in the cancer research game as well. Right. 
it's gotta be fun enough to take their mind off the fact that they're playing a weird game thing for no reason at all, other than their own <laughs> entertainment. You know, they've got to be immersed enough in it to want to continue to do it. And that's a really hard skill to sure. teach. And as a designer, it's also really hard to, to do because a lot of people think, oh, oh, I know how to design games. I've played games before. But game designs, I compare it a lot to cooking. A chef needs to keep all the bad ingredients out, all the good ingredients in at the right levels mm -hmm. in order to create a dish that ultimately is going to be consumed and forgotten about by the person uh, eating it, but during that time, there's a real emotional connection, right. you know, um, if, if you're making good food anyway. Uh, <laughs> so. so what video games do you yourself play? A lot of people play video games to get away from their work. Your work <laughs> is video games, right? So do you continue to play video games outside of that? Yeah, so like, you know, as a game designer, having a Gamefly subscription or whatever, just playing lots of games all the time is really good. I generally don't play them over an hour because a lot of times I've seen a lot of what's going mm -hmm. on here and I'm like, oh, oh, I get this pattern. I have understood this pattern. I have succumbed to this pattern in the past. <laughs> um, so I tend to play a lot of games, but not very deeply. So when people are like, oh man, uh, Dark Souls 2 came out and you've been playing that, I'm like, I played it for 30 minutes. And <laughs> it looks like Dar it felt, felt a lot like Dark Souls 1 to me. But uh, the games I've been playing, like I've been trying to get off RimWorld, which mm -hmm. is an independent strategy game in which you survive on a planet. Rimworld? Um, yeah, Rimworld. Yeah. Um, and what is that, PC or is that all platforms? That is, I think, PC Mac. Yeah. And, uh, it's a good game. Yeah, it's really good. It's, it's a harrowing experience, but it's, <laughs> it's great. Uh, I've been playing some Stardew Valley as well. But, uh, you know, uh, that's why I've been playing. I've also been playing a lot of Rocksmith with my wife. So that's been fun. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Does she she enjoys playing video games as well, or is it just yeah, absolutely. That yeah. yeah, we like we will play League of Legends with her with her father, <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. So you know, it's a family event. Right. Uh, so, bots only. So, so are you? Bots only. <laughs> <laughs> when did you yourself know you wanted to work on video games, design video games, and pursue oh. a career in video game development? Yeah, you know. I've always liked making experiences, and at one time in high school, I thought maybe I'd be a film director. Mm -hmm. um, but throughout my entire life, I've made games, and uh, you know, I moved around a lot. My older brother and my younger brother and my mom, uh, we we all moved around a lot in the Massachusetts area. So oftentimes, it was just us, and we would play Dungeons and Dragons, second edition, and uh, first edition sometimes, but like it was not as fun. But uh, so we'd play a lot of games as a family, um, and then with my brothers and I. Um, and then I, I would make up games myself. You know, I was, I, I didn't come up very wealthy, but I knew a lot of friends who played Warhammer 40,000. And I was like, oh, I really want to play that. So I made my own Warhammer 40,000-ish wow. game. Like, I, I grabbed, I borrowed the rule book, and then I made my own pieces and my own rules out of, like, the, you know, like, cardboard pieces that I made. And that way it was free-ish uh, for me. And, you know, I, my high school, I, I did projects. I just, from an early age, I've always wanted to make them because I've been playing them for right. a long time. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Victor, do you have any last outstanding questions before we uh, sign no. off? No? Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate um, it. I guess maybe one last thing. Are you taking students? Are you looking to you know, expand? Uh, if anybody is interested in the projects you're working on and they want to contact you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested in a lot of different kinds of aspects of research. So if they, uh, if they want to reach out to me at ken at uconn.edu. Uh, K-E-N. You can email me and talk to me about whatever project you might be doing as well. I often field questions from people saying, oh, I want to put a game on this. Um, and I do that a lot, uh, talking about what your real needs are. 
Uh, and if you are looking to collaborate with me, that's really great too. And, and I'm always doing different things. So if, if you have a skill set that you may not think is, uh, oh, I don't know how to do 3D or oh, I don't know how to do programming, um, that's okay. There may be something that we might collaborate together on. I'm talking to you electrical engineers specifically. <laughs> You know, I went to RPI, lots of electrical engineers. I love Arduino, and I'm like I'm running a class this spring where we're going to be doing a lot of interactive, physical-based game things, lobby-ish experiences, um, uh, class called disruptive technologies. So looking to do some of those more off-the-beaten-path interactions. Yeah. So it's really cool. Super cool. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Cool. Let's- This podcast is made possible by funding from the Office of the Provost and the Office of the Vice President for Research. Thanks for listening.